Hello, my friends, from Brazil to India and everywhere in between. Welcome back to Lifegasm Book One, Marshall's Promise. If you're just tuning in, I highly recommend you start at the beginning and listen through chapter by chapter. Otherwise, this probably won't make a lot of sense. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Now, off we go. Lifegasm, Book One, Marshall's Promise, Chapter 10. My Grandma, The Moon. We're raised to prioritize the comfort of others, and that's a really messed up thing when you think about how deep that goes. Karan Gandhi, on Well and Good. Just to be sure, I looked at a map. Yes, I'd estimated correctly. Albuquerque, as I'd expected, was seven perfect hours away. Albuquerque was where my mom had spent her childhood, and it was the current home to my Catholic grandma, grandpa, and more than a few of my seven aunties and uncles. I liked the seven-hour theme of my travel. I took it to be a sign from the universe that New Mexico was the right place to be. Looks like I'm going to visit my family, I said to myself. I reached out to Julia, one of my New Mexico aunties. I knew she and her husband Todd were rather wealthy, and I'd heard their house had plenty of space for guests, not to mention an original Chihuly. Aunt Julia was a workaholic who always smelled good and never forgot your birthday. I texted her about dropping in for a week-long impromptu visit, commencing in seven hours or so, and she was immediately responsive. I'm at work, so I don't have a lot of time, but of course you should come, she texted. Your cousin Stephanie is in town, too. She's staying at Grandma and Grandpa's house, so you're welcome to stay with me and Todd. Well, color me tickled. Steph was going to be there. I guess I wouldn't be spending my entire spiritual road trip peerless after all. I prepared myself for a seven-hour stretch in the car, which wasn't terribly challenging after so much practice. I had Peaches the artist to keep me company. Keep on it. Keep on it. You own it, she sang. And I had perfect faith that seven hours was no big deal, that I could eat it up, that it was a privilege to have so much uninterrupted time to myself. And so it was. Road trip gasm. I arrived at my auntie's and uncle's gated community in the early waves of the evening. I settled into the divine comfort of their guest room, took a hot bath in the luxurious ensuite, then accepted their invitation to a homemade dinner on the back patio. After all that, when everyone else had gone to bed, Aunt Julie and I had a chance to catch up privately. It didn't take us long before we abandoned the shallow waters of small talk. Your mom is worried about you, she told me. Good lord, I said. Well, I suppose it's her right to feel however she feels. Moms always worry about their babies, she argued. But that's just it, I retorted. Says who? It doesn't have to be that way. I'm making a mental note right now to never tell my adult kids I'm worried about them, even if I don't understand their choices or their passions or even think they're putting themselves in danger. I've lived in India by myself, Aunt Julia. I don't understand why my mom thinks I'm all of a sudden incapable of keeping myself alive. I don't think she's worried about that, she admitted. Well, what then? What fear-based narrative is she envisioning? That I won't have enough money? That I won't get my basic needs met? That I won't be happy? It's all so silly. I mean, like I said, she can do whatever she needs to do, but I'm going to keep doing what I need to do. Like telling your mom about your sex life? She blurted out. Excuse me? I asked. 
oh, well, she told me how you told her all about the long trip you took just to see a man friend, and I really don't understand why she needs to know that. It took me a minute to figure out what Aunt Julia was talking about. Then I remembered that I told my mom about the magical day I'd spent with Ms. Rumi and her husband. I told her about the spontaneous hike with the astonishing waterfall and about the satisfaction of making new friends in unexpected places. But, of course, I'd told the story accurately. My day with Miss Rumi was made possible only because I'd traveled all that way to see Mr. Alpine. I'd wanted to help my mom see how dramatically my attitude on life had shifted, but apparently the only detail she'd heard in the whole tale was the word lover. Had I discussed sexual positions, orgasmic dissatisfaction, or the size of Mr. Alpine's organ with my mom? No, not even to the extent that I've shared it here in this book. But knowing that her adult daughter had taken a lover was apparently salacious enough for my mom to report back to her sister in New Mexico. You don't understand what exactly, I asked my auntie. Why I told my mom that story? Yeah, I mean, why does she need to know that? Well, the plot of what happened didn't hinge on sex or anything. The point of the story was actually pretty profound and touching, if you ask me. But why does your mom have to know about your lovers? Aunt Julia pressed. Um, because it would be dishonest to call him a friend, and because I don't feel obligated to shelter my mom from the truth? It just seems inappropriate, Aunt Julia continued. Understood. I get it. You aren't comfortable with it either. What I don't understand is why it's on me to assume that any adult, let alone my own mother, is squeamish at the thought of another adult having a lover. Why is it on me to censor the truth? Because moms don't want to hear about their children's sex lives, sweetie, she persisted. But telling a story that happens to include a lover is not the same as discussing my sex life. I guess we can just agree to disagree, she concluded. Sure, I said, moving on. We talked about her life and the sustainable farming charity that she and Todd supported in Africa, but eventually we circled back to me. I told her how exhausted I'd been from living out of balance and taking care of my kids without pause for eight years, but she brushed off my claim. Yeah, but that's what you signed up for, she said unceremoniously. She explained how she had raised her boys as a working single mom, with only occasional help from her son's dads, more from one than the other. I was taken aback. I felt defensive. I felt like I was being accused of being a bad mom just because my journey didn't look like hers. I thought about my auntie's experience as the mother of two boys, raising them among a network of support, that is, her own parents and many of her siblings, that I simply didn't have in Yosemite or Legrand. I do not mean to minimize her struggles, and I do not contest that she worked extraordinarily hard to do the best for her children. I suspected, however, that she didn't recognize that it's a different kind of struggle to live so far away from one's extended family while raising kids, as I had done. Her life's journey handed her a particular set of obstacles, and my life's journey handed me a different set, but it felt like she was throwing stones. But was Aunt Julia right? Was leaving my marriage some sort of abandonment of my post? Was I reneging on my contractual duty as a wife and a mother? Was I a bad person because I'd signed up for a particular life, been granted the opportunity to live that life, 
and then changed my mind? I've thought a good deal about these questions, and I've landed on the matter in the following way. Yes, I did terminate a contract that was written as a lifelong commitment. Yes, I did change my mind about what I needed and wanted from life. But no, none of this made me a bad person. We do the best with what we know, and when we know better, we do better, Maya Angelou has reminded us. Breaking out of a traditional lifestyle was sure proving to make a lot of people uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, it didn't really matter what anyone else thought of my choices. My kids were safe and loved, my ex-husband and I were co-parenting like champs, and I had God's voice in my own heart, as do you, dear reader, dear listener. All other opinions were none of my concern. When I first saw my grandmother in her bed at home, I couldn't help but think she resembled the moon. Her face was aglow, even as the rest of her body was frail and thin. It was hard to know how close she was to the edge of this world. On one hand, she needed help doing everything. Her primary caretaker, a veritable angel on this earth named Alma, did the basic nursing chores like bathing and dressing grandma. She also took it upon herself to do those extra little things that nobody would have asked her to do, like giving grandma manicures and setting up the Christmas tree when the time came, to name a few. On the other hand, grandma was clearly alive and well under all her physical delicacy. Grandpa spent the majority of his waking hours in a lazy chair in the living room watching right-wing propaganda— and every morning, Alma would wheel my grandmother out of bed to join him. On the day I dropped in, I asked if it would be okay if Grandma and I visited on the back porch instead of the living room. I couldn't imagine connecting heart-to-heart in a space so redolent with political anger and fear. There was a small kerfuffle about whether she would be warm enough outside or if her wheelchair could clear the track of the sliding glass door, but in the end, we made it out. It was a crisp, beautiful day in early September, and we sat silently in the fresh air for a while. I could literally see my grandma glowing with the same godlight I'd seen in Marshall. What a blessing it was to be with her now. The possibility that this may be our last time together was palpable. I'd spent many years of my childhood believing my grandma and I had little in common— This attitude was born in part from my limited experience with her. I grew up in the Central Valley of California, after all, and she was all the way over in New Mexico. But it was also born in part from my mother's unconscious bequeathing of her tension with her own mother. But now, all of that history seemed to evaporate. My adolescent judgments of my grandmother's, quote, flaws seemed trivial now. She was still Catholic, of course, and while I myself would never subscribe to a worldview which put guilt and suffering on a pedestal, I also held no grudge. Her religion brought her peace of mind and peace of heart, and who was I to challenge that? When I told Grandma that I'd made a habit of seven-hour drives, she lit up. Seven is my favorite number, she confessed. Of course it was. Grandma told me stories and bestowed her wisdom. Your right to swing a bat ends at my nose, she declared. When I told her that sounded a little violent, she said, But it's not. That's the point. She recounted her 1985 visit to California when my dad had been diagnosed with throat cancer. Grandma and I were riding in the back seat together while my parents were up front. Maybe these were the days before car seats. 
As Grandma tells it, I grabbed her hand, put my head on her shoulder, and said, Grandma, I love you all the time. I may not say I love you all the time, but I love you all the time. That's still true, I told her and squeezed her hand. I mean, that's what life's all about, right? Love and joy and pleasure. Well, maybe not the pleasure part, she argued. I didn't push it. See, Grandma lived under the firm belief that pleasure was the work of the devil, and in her defense, I suppose that's what she'd been taught. It would bring her no pleasure, pun intended, to learn that it was her very phobia of feeling good that introduced me, at age nine, to the concept of masturbation. My mom and I were visiting for the holidays and staying in Grandma's guest room. One morning, I was in the bathroom doing what one does on the toilet when I heard the door handle rattle. I'm in here, I hollered, thankful I'd thought to click the lock. But my grandmother scolded me from the other side. You may not lock the doors in this house, she admonished. When I asked my mom about it later, she shook her head. Grandma's always been afraid that if anyone locks the door, they're probably masturbating, she ventured. What's masturbating? I asked. I suppose in this light, with a little perspective of her own upbringing, the genesis of my mom's squeamishness around sexuality is easily traceable. My mom was on her own journey, and I honored that. I was actually thankful that my mom hadn't unloaded on me all the sex baggage that her mom must have unloaded on her. I wouldn't call my childhood household a sex-positive household, but at least we weren't anti-privacy. What was it about feeling good, I wondered, that people like my grandmother found so offensive or threatening? Did they think that seeking and accepting pleasure meant living idly or contributing nothing of value to the golden network of human energy and input? Did they think it meant that someone else must suffer? Did they falsely equate pleasure with pushing yourself on someone non-consensually? Ahem, Catholics. Because here's the actual truth. Pleasure is pleasant. Does this need to be said out loud? You don't have to feel guilty for wanting to feel good. You certainly can feel guilty if you want to, free will, but why would you want to? As for me, I choose pleasure in hard work and in rest, fully clothed and fully nude, without any interfering doctrine that tells me I'm not allowed to. Put that in your pipe, Grandma. I spent most of the rest of the week in the company of Steph and Dustin, two cousins who I felt comfortable around based on shared blood, but who I hadn't spent much time with in the last decade or two. Steph was born the same calendar year I was, but we'd grown up many states apart and only saw each other for annual or biannual family holidays in Albuquerque. I remember her as being short-fused and aggressively selfish, but to be fair, she probably remembered me in the same way. What I came to see during this New Mexican week was that Steph had certainly cooled off in her adulthood, but she hadn't lost her spunk, and whatever was left over of her wrath was never pointed in my direction. Dustin was another cousin who was a few years younger than me and Steph. Ergo, during any childhood family gathering, Dustin was dismissed by our snobbish rat pack of older kids and socially ignored. Now, he easily tucked into the same peer group— and I found his dry humor and his understated professionalism to be rather soothing. In short, being around Steph and Dustin was familiar and rejuvenating. One afternoon, Dustin and I were supposed to meet at a particular bar. 
He texted to say he was already there, but when I arrived, I did a sweep of the entire place and didn't see him. During that abbreviated tour of the pub, I decided that the vibe wasn't my thing, so I started to leave, disappointed at missing a chance to see him. I texted him on my way to the car. WTF, I thought you were here. Anyway, I'm not really digging the club, so I'm going to take off. He texted back right away. Dang, cuz, I was in the bathroom. I'd love to see you, but no pressure to kick it here. You do you. I know, I know, I was late to the party, but I'd never heard that phrase before. You do you was exactly what I'd been trying to say in a million more complicated ways. In three simple words, Dustin expressed his recognition of my own boundaries and needs, his acknowledgement that these may be different than his boundaries and needs, and his agreement to honor them anyway. It was concise. It was eloquent. It was an updated version of live and let live. Now, if only I could find a similar idiom for self, because me do me just didn't have the same ring to it. But me doing me was what self first was all about. And if it was socially acceptable and morally correct to encourage others to take care of their needs, the same policy should be equally acceptable and correct when applied to self. At some point during the week, I felt called to pen a long, handwritten letter to Julia and her husband, asking for a loan to buy the affordable commercial property I'd been eyeing in LeGrand. I didn't know how being rich worked, but I did know that Todd was a verified billionaire. That's billionaire, with a B. Asking for money wasn't the most comfortable thing I'd ever done, but I wanted to be told yes or no definitively without always having to wonder what they would have said. I could, I reasoned in the letter, collect the passive income from the office rentals as well as open a meditation center in the available space. I even had a payment plan established. I was good for the loan, I promised. I was shy in handing the letter over because it's so fucking awkward asking for financial help, but I wasn't asking for charity, I reasoned. I swallowed hard and gave Aunt Julia the envelope. This is for you, I said. It's a reach, I know. She promised to look it over, and I trusted the right thing would unfold. A day or two before it was time to head back to Colorado, I thought I'd get back in the meditative mood by visiting a meditation center in Albuquerque. The space was bright and inviting, and there was a woman at the front desk cloaked in the red robes of Buddhist monkhood. She and I struck up a conversation, and she was an attentive listener. When she'd heard the short version of how I got to be where I was, she apologized that the originally scheduled meditation session had been postponed, and encouraged me to check out their adjoining bookstore if I was seeking new inspiration. I did as she suggested, and found an illustrated book about the Buddha written specifically for kids. I'd be curious to know how any religion explained itself to little people, I thought as I cracked the cover. The beginning of the story I'd heard before, but when I got to a page in the middle of the book, I gasped with surprise. Apparently, during the Buddha's 49-day fasting in the forest, where he promised himself he'd sit under a tree until he figured shit out, he'd been attacked by what this story described as a varying assortment of demons. The demons threw spears and stones and other weapons, but the Buddha, who was only in the process of becoming the Buddha at the time, protected himself with a magical force field. How did the force field work? It transformed incoming threats into harmless flowers. I looked up from the pages, eyes wide. Would anyone ever believe me that I did this before I'd read about it? 
then I realized I didn't care what people thought. I knew I'd done it before I'd read about it, and I said a prayer of thanks to the universe for sending me this book and confirming, yet again, that I was on the good foot. The evening before Gangaji's workshop, I said my goodbyes, packed up Peaches the Prius, and started back toward Colorado. I looked out my window at the colossal orange moon rising over the Sandia Mountains. I could see, with my physical and metaphysical eyes, my grandmother's face in the warm golden glow of the Earth's most recognizable planetary satellite. Oh my god, that's my grandma! I exclaimed out loud to an empty car. Everything Marshall had shown me remained blindingly true. Because truth is truth. Truth doesn't change over time or context or witness. I love you, Grandma, I prayed. I love you too, she said from afar. I smiled, glowed, and drove on.